Let me share tonight uh, from uh, an Old Testament book that I have never preached on before here in this environment. Uh, an Old Testament minor prophet, not minor because he is less important, but minor just because of the amount of text that we have associated with his life is not a lot. But he's a man with an interesting story <clears throat> whose personal narrative intersects with a revival that transforms a city in the process of a day. And the reason why I believe in revival is because I think it's the heartbeat of God and it's a seamless thread that is sown within the pages of scripture from Genesis all the way to Revelation. The idea of revival is simply this, that which is dead or appears dead coming into new life again. And the story of Jonah and the way in which he interacts with a society that is hell-bent on its own destruction, upside down, broken in more ways than you could ever count, demonstrates that the mercy of God is in fact greater than the sins of man. And that the heart of God, no matter how dark a city is, is societal, city-wide, regional transformation. And I believe that we are coming into an era, uh, not just in this country, but in the nations of the earth, where we will see moves of God's spirit so profound, so deep, so rich, so powerful that it will transform the landscapes of cities in a day. And that's not just like prophetic, charismatic, like, yeah, God is gonna save the whole world. What I'm saying is that God never does the same thing to the same measure in a different generation. It's always better, greater, newer, and with more force and more velocity than it was in previous generations. And so when I read the stories of the way that God would save cities in a day in the Old Testament, I go, if that was true in the Old Covenant, how much more true is it in the New Covenant? God is still the city-saving God. He is still the regional transformational God. He is still the one who by his spirit can move on the hearts of kings and leaders and elected officials and people of influence. And in doing so, take the heart of stone, make it the heart of flesh, and like water in the hand of God, shift them in whatever direction that they should go. And so in many ways, I take great stock in the story of Jonah because it's an encouragement as it pertains to the legacy of revival and awakening. And I want to challenge you with it tonight because I want you to dream as big as God dreams about the city of Seattle. It is not too hard for God to shift the trajectory of this place in an instant. It is not too tough for God to send an awakening to a campus. It is not too tough for God to save 10,000 at a time, 100,000 at a time. It is not too difficult for Pursuit to rent a stadium and pack it out night after night after night as people are running to the altars to get right with God. If he did it in the Jesus people movement in the 70s, do not tell me that God won't do it in my generation in the year of our Lord 2024. I believe in citywide transformation. I believe in a God who is so great and so powerful that at his voice and at his command, the literal foundations of the earth shake. The graves give up their dead. And all of a sudden, what has been dominated by darkness in an instant is shifted into the kingdom of light. So I believe that God is after cities and we need a theology not as, big of a, not as big as a church, but we need a theology that is as big as a city. Meaning this, that when we think about the canopy of what God can do, it's not just like, well, thank you God for what you're doing on 17th Avenue at the little church here at Pursuit Seattle. No, we are dreaming the dream of God. We are adding our faith to his. We are believing that God is more than able and more than capable to do what scripture says that he actually has the power to 
do. And if we set our sights so chronically low and then we achieve them, it's not really a victory at all. I want to set my eyes to the hills for whence my help comes from. My help comes from the Lord, the one who owns a thousand cattle on 10,000 hills. I want to believe that that God still has enough power, enough juice, enough oil, enough anointing to speak a sovereign word and see a city change its trajectory. And I believe that the book of Jonah and the story of this minor prophet gives us great faith for the things that we contend for on nights like this. In Jonah 1, starting in verse 1, the Bible says this, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it. Watch, because its wickedness has come up before me. Now follow me for a minute. God raised up Jonah to be a prophet during a time of great distress for the nation of Israel. The Northern Kingdom had been captured by a new world superpower named the Assyrian Empire. And the capital of this new empire is a city named Nineveh. In fact, you can visit the ruins of Nineveh today. They are in modern day Iraq. The people of Nineveh worshiped Ishtar, the Assyrian goddess of sex. When the authors of scripture described the city of Nineveh, they said that it's a city of blood, full of lies and robbery, never without victims, a city that has enslaved people with its witchcraft and prostitution, many casualties, piles of dead and bodies without number. And friend, if you worship the goddess of sex, you will find yourself in the exact same position, enslaved, full of lies and never without victims. And who was the Assyrian empire led by? It was led by a ruler named Serendopolis. He lived as a woman. He was famous for cross-dressing and wearing makeup. He was known for making his voice sound higher to match the octaves of his favorite female concubines. And he often stated that physical fornication was the only purpose of life. Serendopolis would eventually die in an act of suicide by setting himself on fire along with his favorite male and female lovers. And do you think that our culture is any different today? <laughs> the more things change, the more they stay the same. The answer, hear me, the answer to the wickedness of a city is God raising up a remnant of the righteous. The Bible says, watch, the word of the Lord came to Jonah because the wickedness of the city had risen to God. Darkness looked like it had won. Wickedness looked like it had won. Depravity looked like it had won. But for every spiritual crisis in any major city, there is a God-sized solution he is getting ready to release. Can I tell you, the church is the God-sized solution for the wickedness of the city that we are in. Nineveh was dark, Israel was broken, the culture was fractured, but God's word 
always accomplishes everything it's been sent forth to do. And so just at the right time, the word which is active, living, breathing, and sharper than any two-edged sword came to Jonah. And this is where his story begins. Israel has been overrun by the Assyrian empire, but how, how and why did this happen? See, after King Solomon died, the nation of Israel descended into chaos, idol worship, and infighting. And ultimately, it would split into two separate nations, 10 tribes in the north and two tribes in the south. But ultimately, this decision to split up would lead to Israel's exposure and downfall. Without a united force, to protect a united kingdom, invading armies would end up carrying the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah off into captivity. Hear me, friend. This is always the tactic of the enemy. Divide and then conquer. But here's what you need to be aware of tonight. Division does not announce itself as division. It announces itself as preference. And when you wage a war for preference, no one wins and everyone loses. Marriage is where personal preference goes to die. Church is where personal preference goes to die. In fact, the only place personal preference thrives is in isolation, and that's why so many folks are lonely today. See, we've got this dangerous pattern in our culture. Folks can't stay in one church for too long. They can't stay in one marriage for too long. They can't stay at one church for too long because they just can't stand the idea of being in a place that doesn't cater to their preference. Newsflash, you aren't the center of the universe, and neither am I. See, every time that you show up to this church on Sunday, you're gonna find at least one thing that you don't like. Welcome to adulthood, we've been waiting for you. In 1 Kings 12, the Bible actually records the singular issue that ultimately leads to the breakup of the nation, and do you know what it was? They were fighting over taxes. The folks in the South thought the tax burden was too high. The folks in the North thought it was just right. So the nation split up and they ended up in slavery. See, if the devil can't defeat you, he will divide you because a divided people will defeat themselves. So I've seen churches split over the color of the carpet. I've seen churches split over the style of the music split over non-essential areas of doctrinal difference. I had a guy send me a message on Instagram recently saying that the Lord had told him it was time to find a new church. So I asked a question I shouldn't have, which was why. And he said, because I did not agree with him that the earth was flat. We've got churches embracing sexual heresy. We've got antichrist politicians encroaching on our freedom of worship. We've got the city of Seattle legalizing drugs and decriminalizing theft. We've got wars and rumors of war, famines and earthquakes. It has never been more important for the church to stand together for the church is only as strong as she is united. 
And only a united church can heal a divided nation. And make no mistake, the battle lines are being drawn. You will either bow to culture or you will bow to the cross. You will either worship confusion or you will worship Christ. But the time for playing games is over. Now watch verse 3. Jonah, mighty man of faith, minor prophet. What is his response to the word of the Lord coming to him? Inviting him on the adventure of a lifetime to reach a heathen population in the city of Nineveh. So Jonah ran from the presence of the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. And after paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee. Watch from the presence of the Lord. The most miserable you ever be is when you have a call of God on your life, but instead of running to him, you run from him. Hear me, friend, you were built for the presence of the Lord. You were built for the calling of God. You can't escape this. You can't deny this. For you were formed in your mother's womb to accomplish the purposes of God in your generation. And when you are marked by God, there ain't one thing else that will satisfy like being smack dab in the middle of his will. In Psalms 139, David asked the rhetorical question, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you there. If I make my bed in the depths, you there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me and your right hand will hold me fast. You can't escape this because you were built for this. And you can spend the rest of your life trying to cram everything the world has to offer in the God-shaped hole in your heart. And it might satisfy for a temporary season, but it will only leave you more hungry and broken than you were before. You were built to encounter the presence of God. You were built to carry the presence of God. You were built to run to the presence of God. You were built for the purposes of God. You were built for this. And your interior dialogue will try to convince you otherwise. You'll have friends and voices of influence in your sphere around you. Try to talk you out of it. You'll have every excuse the enemy will let you have to talk you out of doing something significant for the Lord. But when you've been marked by his presence, it don't matter how fast you run or how far you go. You've got a homing beacon downloaded into your spirit and God won't give up until you find yourself smack dab in the middle of his will. Jonah fled to Tarshish because Tarshish was easy. It was convenient. It was non-controversial. It represented everything Jonah wanted to do in his flesh. See, our flesh craves, watch, the path of least resistance. But the path of least resistance rarely leads you in the direction of God's best. But see, friend, everything worthwhile in your life is on the other side of your stubborn refusal to give up. And if this was easy... Everyone would do it. We need fathers to stay in the fight by continuing to run towards difficult things. We need business owners who stay in the fight by continuing to run towards difficult things. We need young people and college students and retired folks and entrepreneurs who stay in the fight by continuing to run towards difficult things because in the midst of the difficulty, that is where the transformative power of God rests most heavily.
in Proverbs 24, the scriptures declare, rescue those being led away to death and hold back those staggering towards slaughter. You know what the church of God does in this region is it holds back those who would want to run towards their death. Like the pigs that the demons ran into who immediately ran over the cliff and drowned themselves. The church of God holds back the darkness to make room for the light. The church of God holds the enemy at bay to make room for the kingdom of God to advance. The church of God restricts the desire to run towards that which will only negatively impact your life and harm your future. And in doing so, create seasons and canopies for people to enter in to the grace of God which will cause them to have new life. Now watch. Jonah's behavior irritated the Lord a little bit. So in verse four, God has his own sneaky response. So then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea and it was such a violent storm that it arose and the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid and they cried out each to his own God and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. Now this story always reminds me of Jesus in the boat on the Sea of Galilee. While the disciples are freaking out, he's asleep in the boat. There are two reasons, one that is good and one that is bad for the reason why people sleep in the midst of their storms. In a good sense, people can sleep in the midst of their storms because the Prince of Peace is the King who sits upon the throne of their heart. And when you have peace inside of you, no matter of the storm around you, you can operate as a person who does not lose your cool, your hope, your faith, or your perspective. But there's another reason why sometimes people sleep in the middle of storms, and this is not good. And it's because they have grown so numb and dead to the ever speaking voice of the Lord and the knock that happens upon the door of their heart that even when crisis arises and God has made them the answer to the crisis of those around them, they do not have eyes to see nor ears to hear because not only are they asleep on the outside, they are asleep on the inside. Now watch the Lord sent a word, but when the word was ignored, the Lord sent a wind. Hear me, friend, we ignore the word of God to our own peril. For if we are not people of the word, we will find ourselves as people in a storm. There is a violent storm that is raging in our culture. It threatens to break apart the very fabric of our nation. People are losing their minds, throwing their cargo over sea, and yet nothing will satisfy the storm until the people of God wake up. Maybe the storm will quit if we lighten up. Maybe the storm will stop if we appeal to our false gods. Sometimes the storm is the only thing left in God's arsenal to shake everything that can be shaken, to reveal things that can't be shaken. A storm is the last resort. A storm is the final alarm. A storm is God's great wake-up call to his people. I am begging you tonight, refuse to waste 
your storm. Refuse to waste your pain by just complaining about your circumstance. Could it be that God's fingerprints can even be seen in the chaos of your life? Because there is a greater narrative he is about to unfold. And so the captain went to Jonah and said, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. And maybe he'll take notice of us that we will not perish. So they asked him, tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? See, Jonah had been operating under a a, a false identity. (laughs) He had been pretending that he was something he was not. He, He didn't want to tell these pagans that he was a Hebrew that he was a child of, of, of the living God, that he feared and worshiped Jehovah. He knew he was running from the presence of God. He knew he was in disobedience. And so it became a lot easier to lie about who he is so he could blend in with the friends on the ship than to be honest about what he really was because it would only illuminate the fact that he was running in the opposite direction. He's asleep in the boat. A mighty storm is raging. It threatens to break stuff apart. They're throwing their suitcases over the edge of the boat, hoping to lighten the load. And finally, the captain of the ship finds the one dude who still is managing to sleep. He shakes him. He wakes him up. He says, how can you sleep? Call on your God and then ask him the question. Now, all of us, I know who these guys are. I know what gods they worship. I know what temple they go to. I know what socioeconomic system they're from. I know what city they live in. But you is the new guy. Maybe we can blame you. Who are you? And he responds, watch. I am a Hebrew. I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them. And they asked, what have you done? (laughs) For they knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. Can I tell you, when you got to call a God on your life and you're running from him, you don't even have to announce it. People just know because you look miserable. They're like, man, you was created for something. I can just sense it. You even have people who are not God-fearing, who are like, man, I don't know if this makes sense, but you're like living below your destiny. Does that make sense? Even when I was working in politics, I was a lobbyist for a season, and I'll never forget the day that I was lobbying on a bill related to criminal justice before the state senate. And uh, I I liked politics and I I still like politics today, but I didn't necessarily love the job that I was doing. And and I knew that God at some point in my life had placed a call on me for full-time vocational ministry, but this is just what I was doing in this season. And I'll never forget it. I'm testifying before the state Senate committee. I'm talking about this criminal justice issue. And afterwards, one of the senators got down off of their little place that they sat elevated at the end of the conference room. And he came over to me and he goes, who are you? I go, oh, I'm Russ, I'm, I'm a registered lobbyist with a PDC and they just got me down here lobbying on, on this bill today. And I don't even think that this dude was a believer. I kid you not, he looked me in the eyes and he said, you're a preacher and everybody knows. 
And I was like, am I, but I'm not losing my job or like what? Like, am I in trouble? He said, when you started testifying on this bill, all of a sudden we went from talking about the nuances of the RCW and how it impacts the mandatory sentences for this area of the criminal justice system to all of a sudden being caught up in, in, into something that felt otherworldly. You're a preacher and everyone knows it. <laughs> I guess my question for the church today is similar to what the captain asks of Jonah. How can you sleep in a moment like this? Get up and call on your God. You ever seen someone talk in their sleep? That'll terrify you. You ever seen someone walk in their sleep or laugh in their sleep? That's the worst. It's so crazy because they give the appearance of being awake all the while they are passed up. Hear me, it's not enough to look awake, you gotta be awake. Because the days are dark and the hours are short and it is what we do and how we live that will determine whether or not this boat will sink. Spurgeon said it like this, for no Christian is awake unless he steadfastly determines to serve his God. It's what Paul says to the church in Ephesians 5 and 14. Wake up, O you sleeper. Rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. No, Jonah wasn't just physically asleep. He was spiritually asleep. But in verse 9, sobriety hits him like a ton of bricks. The people ask, who are you? And Jonah has had enough of his hiding. Jonah has had enough of his running. Jonah has had enough of his rebellion. Jonah has had enough of his fake identity. So Jonah responds to the captain in the midst of the storm. I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who created the seas and the dry land. Now watch. My country may have been destroyed. My tribe may have been conquered. My family may have been taken, but I am not an Assyrian. I am a Hebrew. And what I love is that when Jonah says this to this pagan captain of the ship, the Bible says they respond. This terrified them. And they asked, what have you done? <laughs> Even though the Assyrians have completely wiped out the northern kingdom, they've subjugated the people, taken off their sons and daughters into slavery, taken over their houses, burned their villages to the ground, stolen their grain, desecrated their temples, set up false idols, worshiped Ishtar, the god of sex. They have done all of these pagan things to try to defile the memory of the Hebrew children. When Jonah declares to this captain, I am a Hebrew, it's like the fear of God struck this captain right in his heart. And all of a sudden he responds, oh, it is your fault. What have you done? I think when a believer finally becomes comfortable in their God-given identity, it strikes fear in the heart of the enemy, unlike anything that we've ever seen before. And see, we're so busy trying to look like everybody else, but the reality is you were born an original and the greatest crime you could commit against God is to die a copy. God needs you to be you. 
God needs you to come into the fullness of who he created you to be. He needs you to carry your identity and stop living in constant comparison, wishing you were gifted like somebody that you're sitting next to. No, God needed you. Why? Because you are an answer in the earth. You're not just a body with breath in your lungs. You are an answer in the earth. You are a walking, breathing, God-sized solution for the darkness of the city that God has planted you in. And when you begin to get confidence about the way that God has hardwired you for such a time as this, then you take the posture of Esther. Maybe I have been called to the kingdom. You know what? If I die, I die. I'm going to go before the king. I'm going to contend for these people. I was made for this moment. I was created for this part in history. Like David, you can say, I serve my generation and then I'll go to sleep. But I have been gifted life in my body for such a time as this. And the greatest argument against death is an unfinished assignment. So I'm standing here until God accomplishes his purposes in and through my life. I'm just telling you, it's time to come out of the shame of being honest about who God has made you to be. This is why Paul says, I am not, watch, ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? It is the power of God unto salvation for who? First for the Jew and then for the Gentile. And if we were to be honest, living in the type of culture and city that we live in today is easy to operate with a low level lying shame that causes us to always try to mask the truth of who God's created us to be. Yeah, like I'm a Christian, but it's like, I'm kind of like an undercover Christian. You know what I mean? Like, you know, I'm a Christian, but I'm like, I'm not one of those Christians. You know, I'm like, I'm like a cool Christian. Like, I mean, like I'm a Christian who doesn't believe anything in the Bible, but I just like claim to be a part of Christ because I like taking selfies at church. No, but I'm like a cool Christian. Like, I'm not one of those Christians. You know what I mean? Those Christians. I'm just, but, but it's like, whatever, man. It's like, whatever you do, bro. Like, whatever's clever, man. God just, you know, it's like, it's just God's whatever. You know what I mean? And we're just, we're kind of like all connected to the same flow. And it's just like, you know what I'm, like, I'm a Christian, but whatever you are, man, that's cool too. And I just, you know, you know I, I'm just like you. And finally, like, Jonah gets tired of pretending he's just like the Assyrians. He's like, you know what? You wanna kill me, that's fine. You wanna blame me, that's fine. You wanna shame me, that's fine. You wanna mock me, that's fine. Assyria may run my country, but they don't run my life. I am a Hebrew. And they're terrified, what have you done? <laughs> It's like when the Roman soldiers arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, and like, hey, we're here to, we're here to arrest Jesus. And we just, we just need to make sure that you're him so that we don't arrest the wrong guy and then look bad to the Roman leadership. So like, like are you Jesus? And Jesus responds, I am he. And the Bible says, and the guards fall backwards, overcome. Hey, ain't nobody praying. It wasn't a Pentecostal prayer service. Ain't nobody anointed them with oil. Ain't nobody lined them up in the front and gave them prophetic words. All Jesus said was, I am he. But the revelation of his identity was so strong that it struck terror in the hearts of the Roman soldiers and literally caused them to collapse and fall backwards. And I'm telling you, when a believer finally gets comfortable with being who God has created them to be, it is the greatest singular threat to the enemy who who operates in darkness, who tries to get you to blend in with a world that you were called to stand out from. And it's still true today. It's hard to change a world you're so busy trying to look like.
Now watch verse 11. The story gets worse for Jonah. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? And Jonah's like, I'm just joking. I'm, I'm actually an Assyrian. You know, I'm a Hebrew. I was just playing, you know. What should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? I love this. I don't know if Judah, Jonah is just like at the end of his life, like he just doesn't care anymore or whatever. Or if like this is like a God moment where he's declaring revelation or maybe he's just like, screw it, God's ticked, my life's over. But he says this, watch. <laughs> Pick me up and throw me into the sea and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. So they took Jonah and threw him overboard and the raging sea grew calm. And at this, the men greatly feared the Lord and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Hmm. Watch the instruction of Jonah, watch. Throw me into the sea and it will be calm. Jesus says it this way, for unless a seed goes into the ground and first dies, it produces no good thing. Hear me, hear me. This is the cry of every true believer. Hear me. Yeah, the Northwest is dark. Yeah, the days are evil. Yeah, the times are tough. But throw me into the sea. Watch. Thrust me into the harvest. Send me to the nations. Because when a righteous man or a righteous woman gets deposited into a chaotic storm, the waves cease, the winds stop, people are saved, and God is feared. Spurgeon said, the way of safety for sinners is to be found in the sacrifice of another on their behalf. In this finite moment, Jonah becomes a picture of Christ. <laughs> for greater love hath none other than this, than a man laid down his life for his friends. What can we do to you to, to make the sea calm for us? What can we do to you to rid ourselves of the guilt and the shame of our own sin? What can we do to you to free us from the grips of the law that only tells us we are sinners but never helps us change? What can we do to you to receive healing in our bodies and, and renewal in our minds? What can we do to you to achieve peace between God and man? You can hang me on that tree. You can put lashes on my back. You can put a crown of thorns on my head. You can put nails through my hands and my feet. You can put a spear into my side. And what they said prophetically as Christ hung on the cross was absolutely true. May his blood be upon us and our children and our children's children. And it was because that blood is still on us today. In Jonah 1, Jonah becomes a prototype, a picture, a type, a shadow of the Christ which is to come. Throw me into the raging sea of your sin, of your calamity, of your chaos, of your tyranny, of your rebellion, of your degradation, of your darkness. Throw me into the sea and you will be saved. And isn't it interesting that even Jesus talks about the sign of Jonah being given to this generation. When they ask for a sign, he says, a wicked and perverse generation seek a sign. The only sign that I will give you is the sign of Jonah. The son of man will be swallowed up in the belly of the earth for three days and then be raised again. And how long was Jonah in the belly of a whale? Three days before he was vomited on land. You've got to see the connection because anywhere that you cut the word of the Lord, it bleeds the atoning blood of Christ. Jonah is a picture of the salvific reality of the one that we worship today.
today, thrown into the sea of calamity, that it may be made calm for those who are still on the boat. And I love their response. Ain't nobody walked them through the four steps of salvation. Ain't nobody hand out a track on how to worship the Lord. Ain't nobody sent them down for a growth track 101 class on how to give your life to Jesus. They had no phone number to call, no telethon to be a part of, no live stream to watch. They throw the Hebrew boy over the ship and the waves are made calm. And all of a sudden they say, we must sacrifice to this God. We must make vows to this God. We must operate in fear and reverence to this God. Because when a man or a woman is willing to as an act of sacrifice, lay down their life for the sake of somebody else. It communicates to that spiritual soul level of who a person is. And it speaks to the reality of, of the ones that, that, that we serve. I know for many of you, including me in this room, that if you were to pick out a city on the map of the United States that you would want to live in, you know, Seattle may not be like in your top three, but I'm just convinced that when we said yes to God, he took that as permission to send us wherever we are most needed. And I feel like that for this region. I feel like that for this church. We have been thrown into the sea of Seattle. But watch what God will do on the back of this sacrifice. So watch what happens, Jonah three. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day walk and he cried out and said, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, by the way, this is the capital of the Assyrian empire. This ain't no farming town with 10,000 people. This is the capital of the world's superpower which has just conquered all of Northern Israel. And Jonah, a Hebrew, who has had a very interesting journey over the last 72 hours, still cleaning the vomit of the whale off of his clothing, now walks through the city, heralding like a crazy man, 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Watch. So the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way. And God relented from the disaster that he said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. God can save a city hell-bent on destruction and wickedness. Just ask Jonah. God can turn the heart of a wicked king and a lost people. Just ask Jonah. Now, Jonah 3 records the greatest revival in human history as 120,000 people in a city turned to God in a moment because a man with a word decided he wouldn't run from the presence of God, he would run to the presence of God and deliver the message of God to a region who had lost its will to live. What's the plan for Snohomish? Revival. What's the strategy for Seattle? Revival. How are we gonna succeed in Kirkland? Revival. How are we gonna grow in elementary school? Revival. How are we gonna pay for the next campus? Revival. How are we gonna launch a marketplace ministry? Revival. How are we gonna launch a youth young adult ministry? Revival. It's literally the only game plan that I have because I'm convinced that if God will find a people who run to him instead of from him, 
that he will rend the heavens and pour out a blessing that we cannot contain. And it will be so effusive, so glorious, so great that it can turn the heart of a city in a day. 40 days and yet Nineveh will be overthrown. They had a day marked on the calendar by which the judgment of God would respond to the evil that had risen before him. And in a moment of time, God sends Jonah to interrupt the process of judgment, creating a canopy of grace for a city to come into the saving knowledge of Jehovah. And in doing so, a city is transformed in a day. And that same God is in the same business of city transformation today. It's so funny the way that Jonah responds. Um, I, I, maybe I've felt like this a, a time or two in my life, but like Jonah preaches this message and it's not even a great message. It's really just a few lines. 40 days and then Nineveh will be overthrown. He's probably thinking, and you guys deserve it, honestly. Y'all pretty wicked. He walks the next block in Nineveh, 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Just let you know, mark it on your calendars, it's gonna happen. 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown over and over and over again. And finally, because the word of God is like a two-edged sword, it separates bone and marrow. Even when it's released from a dispassionate communicator, it still has the power to transform the human heart. And there is something about the richness of the word that Jonah releases that it makes it all the way to the ears of the king. And he proclaims a fast for the entire city. He's like, everybody get your sackcloth on, rub yourself with ashes from head to toe. Ain't nobody gonna eat. And we're gonna call upon the God that Jonah worships until disaster is held back and God sends his grace. And the Bible says that when God does this exact thing, that Jonah gets depressed and upset. He's like sitting under a tree and God shows up and he's like, what's wrong with you? And Jonah's like, well, now you're gonna save the city. And God's like, yeah, that was kind of the, the extra, that, that's why I sent you here, Jonah. And he's like overcome with this like either anger or grief or upset or he's just being emo or whatever it is. But, but God shows up and he's like, help me understand why you are upset. I've sent revival to a city and saved a people. And I think it's because Jonah in his heart still operated with this belief. That the Assyrians did not deserve the same grace that he had just previously encountered only three days ago. Can I tell you, one of the biggest roadblocks to revival in our city is the subtle belief that if we were honest, we believe that other people aren't capable of encountering the same grace that has transformed our lives. It's like, no, nah, I'm so thankful that God's forgiven me, but you sin differently than me. <laughs> And, 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 and your sin is in a different category than mine. And I really want angry God to show up and smite my enemies because that would really give me like a sense of vengeance and a sense of judgment. And like, I'm gonna pray for revival, but honestly, if it doesn't happen and God sends fire and brimstone, I'll be celebrating that because it's the judgment of God. But the Bible says that even in judgment, God desires mercy, that his chief desire is mercy. His chief desire is holding back punishment so that people can come into the saving knowledge. His chief desire is not that people would perish, but instead that all men would be saved, that they would come into the eternal knowledge of who God is, that they would be secure and safe with him. And even though God uses Jonah in a very profound way to conduct the Bible's 
largest ever recorded revival where an entire city gets saved in a day, Jonah is still dealing with this kind of emotional processing by which he now has to expand his view of God, that this is not just the God of the Hebrews, he's now the God of the Assyrians as well. You've gotta remember in the Old Testament, the faith was nationalistic and the New Testament is universal, meaning that it was not just a covenant now made with the Jewish people in the New Testament, that covenant was opened up so that all who believe in the Lord call upon his name will in fact be saved. You know, but in the Old Testament, they still operated in this nationalistic dispensation uh, where God was chiefly interested in a holy nation of people, the nation of Israel, and his chosen people, the Jewish folks. And so when Nineveh gets saved and all of a sudden all these rank pagan, sex weirdo Assyrians are getting born again, Jonah's like, this doesn't compute in my brain because you are my God and I'm not sure I appreciate you being their God. And can I tell you, when revival hits a city, you'll be sitting next to people who were formerly your enemies who are now your brothers and sisters in the faith. And you better deal with your own heart or your own prejudice, lest you somehow quench what God by his spirit wants to do in a region. But they vote differently than me and they sin differently than me and they look differently than me. And you don't understand because I saw what they put on their social media. Yeah, but God saw all the secret sin in your life as well and judgment passed over you and he gave you grace. And so one of the things that will happen in revival is that God will cause people to sit at your table who you would have never invited even into your house. But the Bible says that as we put faith in him, there's no longer Jew or Gentile, black or white, male or female, men servant or maid servant, but in the spirit, we are one. And we talk about revival. And then we get upset when God sends people who look different than us. And God had to confront the prejudice in Jonah's heart as he reveals himself, not just as the God of the Hebrews, but the God of the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Romans, and in fact, the entire universe as well. This God desires a reward. People who will worship from every tribe, tongue, and nation, calling upon his name, giving him great honor for who he is and what he has done in their life. And I'm excited. And in this next season of what God would do by his own spirit here at Pursuit, he's gonna take enemies of the gospel and make them friends of the church. He's gonna take folks lost in all sorts of upside down living and make them clothed in their right mind and they're gonna sit next to you. And God's gonna take people who you don't even think deserve salvation and remind you that they deserve it just as much as you deserve it, which is not at all. And God, by his own spirit, will reconcile people into himself. You know what I love about Seattle? The world has come to this region. Sometimes we go to the nations, other times the nations come to us, and the nations have come to the Northwest. And I'm saying, God, thrust us out into that harvest. Throw us out into that sea. That those on the boat who are still calling on their false gods may in fear and reverence find fresh faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Can God save a city in a day? You better believe it. But when God sends revival, don't curse the thing that he's blessing because it looks different than what you prayed for. God is coming for his reward. And what blesses his heart is when people who you would have never counted in the family of God are now all of a sudden brothers and sisters by faith because of the great work that he has done. Come on, let's stand as we close. <clears throat>